Leaders who are willing to lean into vulnerability often emerge with great strength. On this Saturday cast, Academy member Jason Brooks and his story of the power of vulnerability in leadership. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 385. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show gives you access to the practical wisdom that will empower you to become a better leader. And this is the monthly Saturday cast. About once a month, I air a special episode here on a Saturday. That's a chat with one of our Academy members or listeners. The next episode is still coming on Monday. This is a bonus show. The Saturday casts are sponsored and brought to you by the Coaching for Leaders Academy. The Academy is a year-long cohort of participant leaders who work personally with me to drive movement in their leadership development. You can discover a lot more and get alerted about future opportunities to apply for the Academy by going to coachingforleaders.com slash Academy. And I'm pleased to welcome one of our members of the Coaching for Leaders Academy, Jason Brooks. Jason is a high school principal here in the Los Angeles area. He's got a master's degree from Harvard. He's a talented guy who speaks four languages, including Mandarin, Spanish, and French. And in addition to his leadership role at his school, he's still in the classroom daily teaching Spanish and math. His wife and him are also part of a community of foster families. Jason, I am so glad to welcome you to the show. Thanks for having me, Dave. Well, probably we should start where we often start the Saturday cast. I'm just so curious how you became part of the community and where the podcast showed up on your radar screen initially. Yeah, so I've long been interested in leadership even sort of at the beginning days of being in a classroom teacher, I fundamentally believe that teachers are leading in and in front and with the students, right? When you ask people to stand up in front of a group of 20 to 30 students, that looks a lot like leadership. So since the, you know, the first days of stepping in front of a classroom, I really found it important to really understand how power dynamics, leadership change, all that stuff works. And to be honest, that you know, sort of, I'm the eldest of six, right? I've uh, there's me, four girls, and my little brother. So I've been in and around that for a while, and then certainly in college and high school, sort of was attracted to sort of the responsibility of institutions. And then now, when thinking about how I specifically came to the Coaching for Leaders podcast, there is a really abrupt transition, leadership transition at the school that I currently work and really thrust me into a position where I had a lot of responsibility. And candidly, I didn't have the experience to steward that well. So I was really looking for some real-time resources to help me navigate some pretty tricky situations. And after a quick Google search, just like everything else we do these days, came across Coaching for Leaders podcast and was really attracted in particular to the how-to episodes. So right in the 300s, you know, there's episode 301, 302, 303 that were incredibly helpful in terms of helping me navigate, like I said, you know, a, a really difficult season in both the school's history and then also personally. I, you know, I jumped from being department chair, dean to leading a division of a school and I, and I hadn't had a ton of experience and really found that cushion for leaders and, you know, how to inspire ownership, how to change behavior, how to lead former colleagues, those practical 
nuggets of wisdom and truth are really, really, really helpful for my development. You and I have both spent a lot of time in formal education programs, uh, getting Mm -hmm. a lot of advanced education. And we've both run into this challenge of we get into a role of leadership and you come to that point, at least I did, where you're like, man, I I haven't learned a lot of this before. Certainly not in a formal program. And it sounds like you hit that point a bit too. That's right. And it was, it's really interesting in my own you know, development to reflect back. One of the things and one of my sort of access to grind in education is that you, know, you, you can go through undergrad and grad school and get all these fancy degrees from big great universities, but actually not know how to lead as a teacher, not know how to lead a group of students, not know literally how to quiet them down, how to pull the best out of them. There's no classes on teacher leadership. And then the same is true at the administrative level where it's like, great, there's classes on finance, there's classes on management, there's HR, there's this and that, there's scope and sequence. But actually, how do I get people, how do I hire? How do I get people who are humble, hungry, and people smart? How do I navigate difficult personnel decisions? How do I balance a budget? How do I do these things? How do I shift people from seeing me as a colleague now to their actual leader? How do I navigate you know, former tricky personnel decisions, like there's not really a, 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 a manual for those things. And, and frankly, we sort of seem to get hazed into or out of these situations. And for me, that just wasn't an option because, you know, when I make mistakes, the students have to pay. And I want to make sure that I'm doing my absolute best to prepare every single day so that the mistakes I will inevitably make have a lessened impact on our kids. Because the the truth is that in a school community, the teachers, the parents, the administrators will be fine. We have our big fancy degrees and can sort of make a way, but the most vulnerable population is our students. And, you know, I feel like I have a heightened sense of responsibility to really make sure that any decision I make um, is going to be good by the kids. Yeah, and you hit on something that I've struggled with in the past too, and I know for a lot of our Academy members is true, is you run into these obstacles and it's not really appropriate, especially in a role like you're in, Jason, it's not really appropriate to be asking around your colleagues right. of like, That's right. how can I handle this situation? Because you're the person in charge, right? And there's a sense of that loneliness that is very much a part of navigating this thing we call leadership. I'll, t- I'll tell you a funny story. So the day I found out that I'd be in this new role, I literally Amazon primed a book, How to Become a Principal, and I was reading it and I brought it in the next day. It's just a sort of habit, always bringing my book and sort of having it on my desk just to demonstrate lifelong learning for our students. And then I was working on an email and I looked up and saw the book and the title and I was like, that is, of all the books to have, yes, we want to demonstrate lifelong learning. That's not the book to have on your (laughs) desk. That's awesome. (laughs) So I took it home and read it at home. If, you know, you you do get sort of thrust into these you know situations and and, and have to make the best of it. Yeah, so, and, yeah. and it is sort of isolating, and and you feel all the emotions. But uh, I think for me, that's been one of the the deepest joys and the biggest benefits of the of the academy. Not only to see that you know there's you know guys and gals doing amazing stuff all over the world and all over the nation, but also people find themselves in very similar situations. So not only can they sympathize, they can empathize, but they can also help you game plan uh, pathway forward, which is you know invaluable to me personally. So. 
Cool. Well, I, I want to ask you more about that. But first, I want to go back on something you just said. Because I, I was thinking as you were saying this about being thrust into this role, I know coming out of school and getting my first role and my first big promotion a couple of years into it, I remember sort of having this thought of how that was supposed to look. You know, you were you showed up at a staff meeting and someone announced a transition and everyone applauded or whatever. And the reality of like actually moving up <laughs> into a new role sometimes is really not that glamorous. My my first major move was literally a region manager called me at like 10 o'clock at night. I was at home and it was like, hey, someone just quit. We need you at the, the meeting tomorrow morning. Congratulations. You just got promoted. <laughs> it wasn't glamorous at all. Oh, yeah. You know, there's a very similar situation where I went from, you know, literally over a weekend to being sort of buddies and colleagues. And then now like, oh, wow, I'm a lot of people's bosses, right? And that was a challenge. And I think the more we can be honest about that, the better. You know, I didn't do everything well and I made a ton of mistakes. I learned from all those mistakes and tried to improve, of course. But yeah, there is a little bit of like, oh, wow, you know, this bus just hit black ice. And I guess and I went from being a passenger to the drivers and wow, okay, I don't really know how to drive a bus, but let's see if we can get home. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, and that, there's a lot of that on the inside. And I just found that, you know, people respond and have responded to, I mean, just being honest, right? And just saying like, look, I've never been a high school principal before. I'm, I'm going to mess a lot of stuff up. We're both learning. And I've seen people come alongside me and help and pitch in. And I imagine if I had said, I know it all, I figured it out, trust me, that would have alienated folks. So, you know, that Brene Brown, you know, a few others talk a ton about sort of emotional vulnerability and how vulnerability, especially from leaders, resonates. And I think our instinct is to say, like, oh, I have to project, right? Fake, we say it all the time, fake it till you make it, you know, project power, right? You know, do all these things. But people are smart, right? People know when somebody's faking it, right? People know that, like, dude, you were, you were with me yesterday and now you're leaving. We all know that you don't know what you're doing. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> like, you're, you're, not, you're not fooling anybody, right? Yeah, like, yeah. let me help you. We'll help each other and we'll make it through, you know? Yeah. Uh, so I, I found, like, that's a mantra I have to tell myself. Like, just be vulnerable, share admit mistakes. And it, 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 I've noticed that it creates a more safe environment for younger teachers and other emerging leaders to say, Hey, like, I really screwed this up. Can you help me? Mm. Right. Or like, I actually don't know how to deal with this personnel decision or like, should we go left, right, or stay in the middle? So it's sort of counterintuitive, but I've noticed that folks have brought me authentic problems, right? Because if I project, yes, I have everything together, then I'm sort of asking that everybody that I'm leading comes to me with problems having already been solved. And we all know that's actually not the case, right? So if I can say, here are the things I'm struggling with, people are more likely to say, here are the things I'm struggling with, and then we can problem solve and collaborate, which, you know, this is why we do the work. Yeah. And even though, you know, you were learning as you were going, of course, as, as most of us do when we're thrust into a leadership role, you knew that. And yes. so that serves you so well. And I mean, that's one of the things I noticed about you right away when you reached out to me, and I think six or seven months before you had applied for the academy is I noticed that authenticity and that humbleness that you brought into your learning. And you really kind of jumped in with like, how can I learn as much as possible? And uh, so one of the things I'm curious about is as you started listening to the experts on the show, 
Um, Mm. What emerged for you that was useful at that time where you were just absorbing and really trying to, uh, to bring in as many new things as possible into your operating system? Most of my training had been, as you mentioned, in teaching and education. So I feel very comfortable and steeped in sort of all the best ed research and sort of, you know, the best graduate schools, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And what I found in this new role, sort of surprisingly, is that you move from being an instructional expert, from being a good connector with people and deliver content to running a small business. And I think that is the transition that people underestimate. When you move from being a teacher to a division head and or a leader of a school, now you're running a small nonprofit and that requires a different skill set. So really being able to pull from you know some of the best thinkers in the business industry was profoundly helpful for me to be able to look at like what are the leading indicators, the lagging indicators, what are you know the multiplier and diminishing? How to inspire ownership, right? Like when as a manager do I step in, right? Because now I had there's me, department chairs, directors, and then teachers, all folks that I was inter- interfacing with at different levels, right? And like, I just don't have enough time to jump in on every issue, right? So when do I say, no, I'm going to actually let you figure that out and maybe make some mistakes because I trust you. And then absolutely, no, I have to step in and really manage the situation because if it doesn't, it'll all blow up in our face. So for me, like actually figuring out how, you know, Business industry leaders are doing it. Science industry leaders are doing it. Folks in hospitals, folks in engineering, so folks in the software development space were doing handling similar problems. For me, was I mean, I, I I can talk to you for hours about how helpful that was, because again, you just don't get that sort of training in the classical sort of teacher training educational space. Yeah, indeed, indeed. And you zeroed on a few of them early on that really resonated with you and just your work. I know one of them, and you mentioned Hungry, Humble, and Smart earlier, Patrick Lencioni's model. How was that useful to you? That one in particular. So one of the, one of the first tasks that we had to do was, I, I say this with deep reverence, we had folks who were doing their absolute best as teachers, right? And in some cases, not all, but in some cases, that was not meeting the needs of our students. And we had to have really difficult conversations, you know, that, that moved them in a different direction, ultimately in the service of the students. What that means on the back end is that you have to get somebody new, right? And you have to have a process for doing that. And when you're looking at 100 resumes, 50 of which have PhDs from Caltech and JPL and Stanford and all this stuff, and, you know, the other 50 have you know, all the bells and whistles you had hoped that you would be able to accomplish in your life. How do you make sense of that? How do you make sense of a hundred people who in this one page all look, air quote, qualified? And for us, having that very simple matrix of, you know, people hungry, humble, and people smart really helped us and our team navigate these resumes. And it was really a powerful exercise to read you know, these hundred resumes and then say, oh, there's real clear evidence of this person being humble. So therefore, you know, I'm going to ask in our interview, we're going to ask questions about them being people smart, or we're going to really prod on the hungry piece, right? And to see how these themes emerge over time was helpful in sort of deciphering so much information. Because again, you know, teaching is different than other industries in that once you hire a teacher, that person's on board for nine months. And it is really damaging to cut that person loose. So other industries, you can get 
your two-week notice and sort of move on and et cetera, da, 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 you can find somebody new. But hiring is the most important thing that you do in a school because that person is standing in front of kids and shaping their lives, right? The reason that most people have math anxiety is because the person that they interfaced around math developed a certain identity. You either are a math person or you're not. You're good at math or not. How do you not know fill in the blank, right? And that's because at some point, a high school principal or whoever was in charge hired that person, right? So I, I you know, Dr. King, Martin Luther King said famously, you know, there's the fierce urgency of now. And I bring that to the hiring because once you hit that button, it's incredibly difficult to change. And it's going to cause a lot of angst and anxiety and pain on the back end. So on the front end, I really want to make sure that we're using vetted rubrics that people, the whole hiring team has the same sort of rubric around how we're getting somebody on board. And the last thing I'll say is that, you know, hiring in education feels a lot like sort of the old school, you know, turn of the century sailing across the Atlantic where it's like, great, we're going from, you know, the, the UK to America across the pond. That's a you know, three month voyage. But, you know, you get halfway across, you're in the middle of the ocean, you realize this captain isn't working out. <laughs> your options are very limited. <laughs> you know, you can't just start again. You can't just fast forward your voyage. You've got to figure out how to get to the other coast, right? So we want to make sure that before we even set off on the voyage, we've done our due diligence and are very, very clear on who are the people that we're inviting on the ship so that once we're on the ship, it'll be a productive trip, right? And that all the outcomes and all the goals that we're trying to hit were taken care of and accounted for on the front end. So again, Lencioni's and the, you know, that very simple framework was really helpful for us, especially in determining folks who, who we wanted to talk to after they were above the threshold of, of technical capability, right? So like, if we know that these hundred people can do the job, they know the content that, that we want them to deliver, then how do you sort them out? And for us, humble, hung, hungry, and people smart was invaluable. When you I think you hit on something big here that many of us have run into is all of a sudden a position opens for whatever reason, and you, there's a ton of pressure to fill it as quickly as possible. That's right. And a lot of us know all what you just articulated beautifully, but we forget it <laughs> in that moment of, oh my gosh, I need to hire someone. Mm-hmm. And then have the thought 30, 60, 90 days in, like, ooh, we should have spent another week or two looking and talking and interviewing or asking some follow-up questions. It's cool that you took that model and not only had your whole team aligned around it, but even used it as a screening process to the extent you could on resumes and starting to see that. And I love that you did that. That's awesome. Yeah, it's great. And and my assistant principal, you know, we have a, a, a monthly leadership check-in. She's also, you know, a listener of the podcast. And we, you know, we, we talk shop all the time about uh, leadership. So what we did before we entered the current hiring cycle, we took all of the resumes. We went back into our system and dug out all the resumes. Once I found out about this Lencioni framework, we dug out all the resumes of the people before and sort of did some, some reverse engineering said like, all right, let's apply this framework to folks that we either did or did not hire. And it came through. I mean, we both sat down and were like, oh my goodness. Yes. We sort of had a hunch why we didn't want to invite this person in, but that makes sense. You know, they were too hungry for our school or they were too humble for our school or they were really people smart, but didn't really have the substance. So it was really helpful for us to sort of beta test it on the, the, the last batch of resumes. And it gave us a ton of confidence moving into 
last hiring season. Awesome. Awesome. You mentioned earlier on just some of the practical things and one of the other models that I remember you uh, telling me about from a practical standpoint that was useful is here in the episode with Cameron Harold on uh, the Vivid Vision. And we begin the academy experience with having everyone go through a planning process and establishing mm-hmm. a vision. Uh, but you actually did this even before you had applied to the academy uh, yeah. because of that episode. Uh, tell me more about how that was useful to you. Yeah, that episode, you know, was really helpful for me because, you know, I'm I'm a husband and a father and a teacher and I have, you know, so, you know, we're involved in church. So there's so many demands on our time that one, I want to do a few things with my life. One, I want to live a seamless life where if folks from any domain of my life saw me in another domain, they wouldn't be surprised, right? So if I'm walking down the street with my wife, people are like, oh yeah, I know about Krista and da 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 da. So if I want to live a seamless life. So it's really important for me to construct this vision of what I wanted my life to look like and to have a very clear goal so I can hit that. So then I can have the honest conversations with everybody in my life and say, how am I doing as a husband? How am I doing as a teacher? How am I doing as a father? How am I doing as a parishioner? How how am I doing? Because I've articulated that. I've made it very clear. I wanted to apply the same rubric that we ask our teachers and our direct reports and all these folks to say like, here are the goals and the metrics that we want to hit. How are we measuring up against what we've articulated that we want? So coming across that episode was really validating for me uh, because it, it sort of spoke to something that I knew I probably should be doing. But uh, having, having heard it, I was like, okay, great. This is unequivocally something I need to be doing. What did you do after you heard it and you got that feeling of like, gosh, I should do it? Did you literally sit down and write a vision or how did that emerge? I'm a big whiteboard guy. So I literally walked into my classroom and sort of wrote down the domains of my life that I cared about, whether it's health and fitness or emotional health or family or et cetera. And then said, okay, here are the domains that I care about. Let's start writing under each one, whether it's like future or current or wherever, just sort of figured out what I cared about. You know, and this is the hard part of the vivid vision is that you have to also decide in that conversation, like, what am I okay with not being great at? And for me, it was... You know, I was in college during the late 90s, early 2000s, and Dave Matthews was a big thing. And, you know, I wanted to be a great guitar player, maybe, you know, play guitar on the side. And that was one of the things that didn't really make it in the Vivid Vision. When I'm 85, do I want to be a fantastic guitar player at the expense of my family? Yeah, no, I'd, no, I'd rather be a better, you know, family man than to be able to do a, a guitar concerto. It's having that conversation with yourself, putting everything out in one space having it whiteboarded or on an Excel spreadsheet or however you do it, but having it there for me made it clear, but also reduced the anxiety, reduced the anxiety about, am I actually doing all the things that I want to do? Yeah. Yeah. Because I've, I've, I wrote them out. I, I, I categorized them and then I'm, you know, measuring my progress against it. Isn't it interesting how so much of leadership in both the professional space and the personal space is of deciding what not to do. That's right. That's right. You know, yeah, the power of no, the power of no. Yeah. 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 I mean, we spend so much time thinking about like, I got to do this. I can handle that. And it, so much. And you, you, you and I have this conversation all the time within our academy and, and our academy colleagues of how much we're talking about set that aside, aim lower as far as trying not to do 10 different things this week, do two things. It's such a part of 
really getting the things done that are most important to us. And there's something about writing it out like that that really does start to clarify that decision process. And I think on two domains, right? Where it's one, just saying like, I'll speak for myself. As a leader, I operate with, I take the responsibility of leading a school, leading a division very seriously. And I want to help everybody. And, you know, when you're dealing with young people and humans in general, there's no lack of problems. There's no lack of fires to put out. So you can get really distracted diving into something that probably isn't the best use of your time and certainly won't help steward the whole institution. Mm-hmm. So be, to be able to say very clearly, I love you. I care about that problem, but I can't help you. Here, here's who can was really helpful. And having that vivid vision was really good. For a, a very practical example is saying like, if I'm the division head and a teacher comes to me with a problem and I workshop that problem with the teacher, I've undermined and skipped over their department chair. The department chair is the person who is best equipped to really you know, do that frontline problem solving with the teacher. If the department chair can't do it, however, then I'm happy to step in. And really trusting that process and trusting that loving no, if you will, to really do its work. The other piece, it's, it's strategic, right? It's saying as a school, as an institution, you know, as a nonprofit, do we care about, you know, physics education or math education? If we say that we care about physics education, are we, are we putting our resources there? Say you care about physics education, why are you at this history conference? So it really helps having articulated the vision helps align how you, you know, allocate resources. And if once you've said it, then it make then you can put your time and your money and other resources in the right buckets, uh, ultimately in, in service of, of the institution. You've mentioned the academy a couple of times, and I'm curious, what's been most useful to you from working with your colleagues in the academy? Oh, wow. I would say a few things. I think uh, on a personal level, I feel like I found my tribe. You, know, you mentioned earlier that leadership can be isolating. Uh, and in many cases, it's inappropriate to share what you're actually going through with folks in your institution. So to be able to have the emotional support of folks who are going through di- similar situations is invaluable. The diversity of the members of the academy, in particular our group, I was shocked. I was shocked, right? We have four countries represented, uh, several states represented, people who are coming from different you know, you got hospitals, software development, you know, sales and marketing. You have so many different people who are doing things in different areas that I find it personally really helpful. Uh, and we also know that, you know, if you have a homogenous input, you're going to get a homogenous output. If you have a diverse input, you're going to get diverse output. So to have, when you're working on actually solving the problems that we encounter, having people from a bunch of different domains and industries for me, has given a better solution set because it's vetted by, hey, you need to look at this or actually you're missing this or have you thought about this from an HR perspective? So when I actually go back to the work of leading a school, I have a better sort of draft, right? It's the same thing that we all did in high school and college, right? When you write a paper, that's that, you call it a rough draft for a reason, right? Because it's rough around the edges, but you go and get some peer editing and you get some help and you get... Uh, some perspectives and that final draft is better and it should be better because of the process. And when you have better people as a part of the process, the ultimate product is better. So I'd say those two pieces, the the emotional support and then just the, the, the quality of conversation 
And I think, I think the third out at a third, the opportunity just to learn from different people. That's fun. Just to sit back and say, wow, that really is an interesting puzzle. How would I solve that? Or wow, that's a really difficult uh, situation you find yourself in. Like, wow, I'm learning a ton. So if I happen to see that in my career, I can actually can say something about it because, you know, you're sitting around a virtual table with six to seven other people who, who are bringing all sorts of problems and fun gadgets and widgets to the conversation. Yeah, it's interesting, as you were saying that diversity, I was thinking your group in particular, I think everyone is in a different time zone. I don't think we, yeah. you and I are the only ones in the same time zone and everyone's in a different industry as well, almost entirely. And it is interesting how much still, when it comes to people making decisions, deciding what not to do, how many things come up where we're like, yep, dealing with that too today. Yep. <laughs> you know? And yet seeing the lens of like, how would I solve this versus how would someone else solve this? And like, oh, I never would have thought about that because that's just not the way we think in our industry or institution for whatever reason. That's right. All right. So one of the things we tend to do on the Saturday cast is put together a little bit of a training plan for those who'd like to dive in on some of the episodes that Jason's mentioned here. So Jason, we mentioned episode 301, How to Get the Ideal Team Player with Patrick Lencioni. That was where the hungry, humble, smart model came from that you spoke of. Uh, Lencioni talked about that in, in detail in episode 301. We also talked about how to create a vivid vision, episode 345 with Cameron Harold, And you mentioned also uh, multipliers and diminishers early on in the conversation. I know that's a model that's been really useful to you too. And that was episode 305, Liz Wiseman was my guest. And I'll have all those in the notes here as well for the Saturday cast for this episode. So just look that up if you'd like to dive in more on what Jason mentioned. Jason, before I let you go, one of the questions I often ask is what people have changed their minds on. Uh, when you think about your journey over the last year or so, and especially stepping into this new role, what have you changed your mind on in relation to leadership? Yeah, a lot. But I grew up, my, you know, my dad was a Vietnam vet and he's a cop for 25 years. I was really attracted to education, really attracted to sports and sort of top-down models of leadership. And that's not to say that those are good or bad or anything other than what they are. But I've found that vulnerable collaboration, and it it is not my skill set, it is not my strength, but I'm trying to grow in that domain. I found it, it really is helpful and it resonates. And I can sort of be the well-intentioned diminisher. I can come in and be the answer guy. I can come in and be like, you know, let's do X, Y, Z, dot, 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 and not be always aware of how that affects people and how that really tamps down other people's curiosity. So trying to step back and let other people's and other voices come to the surface, that's the first thing that comes to mind. Because I just, I've been so steeped in that coach, leader, platoon sergeant, et cetera, like that person has all the answers, has the direction, follow that person and we'll be okay. And that's just not the way, in my opinion, how flourishing and authentic leadership really is working these days. I think you're so much like the rest of us, Jason, in that so many of us have seen that model, either growing up or in our institutions. And now we're learning a a different way to do it that uh, really relies on us becoming more of that coach and mm-hmm. asking those questions and taking that step back like you've demonstrated. Mm-hmm. Jason, it's been fabulous. It's just 
a privilege and honor to work with you. Uh, thank you so much for taking your time and sharing your story with us and sharing what you've been working on and how you've been vulnerable. I so appreciate it. Yeah, likewise, Dave. It's been it's been an honor and a pleasure just to work with you and an academy and just to be a listener. I'd be happy just listening. So just to be able to be part of the academy has been huge for me. So thank you. Well, thank you. And I've got a question for you listening. Do you have a success story from what you've learned from the Coaching for Leaders podcast that I should know about? I would love to hear it. And maybe even with your permission, share it here with our listening community, maybe even here on a future Saturday cast. If you have a success story, I'd love to know about it. Just go over to coachingforleaders.com slash success to share your story with me. This Saturday cast was brought to you by the Coaching for Leaders Academy. If you'd like to discover more about the Academy and get alerted about opportunities to apply for membership, you can visit coachingforleaders.com slash academy. Our very next applications will be opening to the Academy in March 2019. So be watching for more on that. Thank you so much for listening and see you for our next regular episode this coming Monday. Have a great weekend. Take care.